So all of kind of the most well-known market makers, both in TradFi as well as in crypto, that's their primary business and that's our primary business. We've been actively trading since 2017 and, you know, knock on wood, we've never had a down day in our own prop book during that whole time. Hey everybody, Tanner here with Wagme Ventures. On today's episode, we have Julia Zoe, partner of venture and market making in Alpha Lab Capital. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagme Ventures podcast, where we do snapshots with interesting builders and founders from across Web3. Check out wagmeventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with Julia at Alpha Lab Capital. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with Julia Zoe, partner focused on venture and market making at Alpha Lab Capital. Julia, what's up? How's it going today? Hi, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate the time and know we have a ton to talk about. So I think that the goal of this episode is really to shine a little light on the market maker side of the conversation, which I think we've been a little light on on this show. So I know you have a ton, to, a ton of expertise there. But before we get to that, would you mind just introducing yourself to the audience? Maybe tell us a little of your professional journey and then also kind of your crypto Web3 journey as well. Absolutely. So I started my career as an economist working at Columbia University. I was focused on doing research in the housing markets. And this was in 2007. So that was a really interesting time to be studying the housing markets. And, you know, so very early on in my career, in my very first professional job, I got a glimpse of what it looks like when a market is in complete meltdown. Then after that, I pivoted to Web2, and I spent about a decade working at different early stage startups between Seed and Series B. And, you know, I really love early stage startups and the energy of, you know, when you're coming out of product market fit and you're hitting that growth phase. That's something that really energizes me. And I feel like I gained a lot of great experience during those years. And then in 2017, Alpha Lab was founded by two, you know, people that I'm very close with and have known for over a decade. And then so I kind of became part of that organization and have been there ever since. Very cool. Okay. Love it. So for this first part of the conversation, I just want to ask a bunch of questions that I kind of have about market making and the role they play, market makers play in kind of the broader environment. So you know, first question I have, like, are market makers absolutely necessary for every token project? And in your opinion, like, why or why not in either direction? Yeah. So strictly speaking, it is not a requirement because you can launch a token and you can, you know, create uh, liquidity pools on DEXs. You might even be able to get listed on some sexes without having a market maker. So strictly, no. However, I think if you don't have a market maker, right, you do run the risk of facing a cold start problem with liquidity on your token. So just this past week, we had a great example of what happens when you have low liquidity with XRP. I don't know if you all follow this. XRP is obviously not a new token, but they had very low liquidity on Gemini and their price briefly spiked all the way up to, you know, $50, right, before coming back down to, I think it's trading somewhere around 50, 60 cents. And so what happens when you don't have a market maker is you can ex experience kind of these extreme volatilities. You can experience, you know, high slippage when you're trying to place large orders. You could have a wide bid-ask spread, meaning that it's more expensive for people to transact. So these are some of the things that could very well happen if you don't have a market maker. Got it. Super interesting. Okay, so in the selection process between going with a DEX or a centralized exchange, un under what cases is one or the other better for different types of token projects? 
Yeah. So first of all, it's not strictly an either or, because obviously, you know, you can be listed on both DEXs and SEXs, and many token projects are. Um, I would say that the token projects that tend to prefer, you know, creating liquidity pools on DEXs first are those that are more uh, DeFi native, right? Their user base is DeFi native and they're going to be on the DEXs. For centralized exchange, you know, that generally brings you to a much wider audience just in terms of sheer number of people compared to the DEXs. And it's also somewhat of a different audience because, you know, generally the people who are on sexes and not on DEXs are people who are not na DeFi native. So I think what it comes down to is really understanding who your audience is, right? The people who want to be kind of buying and selling your token, what kind of people they're going to be. And that also informs the choice of different centralized exchanges, right? Because different centralized exchanges cater to different geographic audiences, kind of different demographics. And so we very much encourage projects to start by understanding who their audience is, and then using that to inform the choice of liquidity venue. Perfect. Super interesting. Okay. So for any listeners out there who aren't trading crypto in an institutional environment, I'm curious, you know, how does market making impact retail investors? Yeah, this is a great question. So to answer this question, I'm going to go back a little bit in history, right? So the U.S. equities market is the most liquid market in the entire world. Back in the early 90s, the average spread in the U.S. equities market was close to 1%, right? So if you wanted to transact, if you wanted to buy or sell a share of equities, you were paying almost 1% spread to do that transaction. This was before the electronic market makers, you know, the first generation like, like Tower, like Citadel, like Jump. This is before they kind of came onto the scene. Over the course of the 90s, you had these electronic market makers kind of emerge and come to really dominate the market, right? By the, by the 2000s, they're over, you know, 80, 90% of the entire market. And what happened during that decade was the average bid-ask bid spread in the U.S. equities market went down from almost 1% to below 10 bips, right? Now, I think it's probably below one bit. So the impact of market making on retail investors, which we saw when market making was first sort of invented in an electronic fashion, what it really did was it dramatically decreased the bid ask spread and it made it much more inexpensive for retail traders to transact. Got it. Super interesting. Okay, so from inside Alpha Lab, I'm, I'm really, really curious. How do you guys think about the difference between centralized and decentralized market making? Yeah, so we actually have a piece on our blog that we published a few months ago about about this exactly this topic. So centralized exchanges work on a CLOB, what's called a CLOB model, right? Central limit order book. And so on a central limit order book, you need private market makers like firms like Alpha Lab to provide the liquidity in the form of you know resting limit orders. Decentralized exchanges come in different flavors. But two of the you know big kind of buckets we can put them into are the AMMs or the automated market makers, and then there are also CLOB DEXs, right? So DYDX is probably the best known example of a DEX that is a CLOB DEX. So with AMMs or automated market makers, there isn't really a role for private market makers to play because the liquidity is provided you know in the pool based on this function. With a CLOB DEX like DYDX, the role of a market maker is still kind of very similar to what it looks like on a centralized exchange. Really interesting. Okay. So I think there's going to be some folks in the audience that this is 
a relevant question for where, you know, if someone is interested in monitoring their liquidity and, and really like trying to isolate, like what key variables should they be looking out for during different stages of launch and trading? What would you recommend on those fronts? Absolutely. So the key metrics that we pay attention to are spread, depth, time, right? And slippage is another one. So spread refers to the difference between the bid, the best bid and the best ask, right? And depth re- refers to how, how much resting liquidity there is on their books. And depth is usually spoken of based on percentage points. So for example, how much depth do you have within 1% of your midpoint or within 2% of your midpoint, right? So these KPIs, you can see them on on the exchanges, you can see some of these uh, metrics on CoinGecko. There are also uh, third-party platforms, like we partner with um, a company called Glass Markets that provides dashboards where you can monitor and you can see your uh, uptime refers to you know what percentage of the time you're maintaining certain KPIs. So if you contract with Alpha Lab, we will um, guarantee to you a certain spread, a certain depth and a certain uptime. So we will say to you, for example, 96% of the time, these KPIs are going to be met, right? And kind of that's our guarantee to you. We provide weekly reports to our clients as well. And then there there are also third-party ways for them to be monitoring those those KPIs. Really interesting. Okay. So, you know, we're well into 2023. And I think a lot of people want to put 2022 kind of firmly behind them. But I think it's worthwhile to reflect a little bit on sort of these moments of crisis, right? And I think one thing that, or one aspect of a crisis that can't be overlooked is really like what's going on with liquidity. And so from your perspective, like maybe taking a look at a variety of angles, whether it's, I don't know, token projects, centralized exchange exchanges, decentralized exchanges, market makers, how can different players react to crisis well? You know, because crypto markets being what they are, there inevitably is going to be more crises in the future, right? Yeah, for sure. So I think this is something that, again, you know, we can learn a lot of lessons from from the traditional markets because crises don't only happen in crypto. <laughs> we have to remember that, right? Plenty of, sure. yeah. uh, you know, plenty of crises happen in traditional financial markets as well. So generally, after a crisis of any time in TradFi, the exchanges just pause trading. Right. And, you know, we saw that in, for example, like the 2010 flash crash in crypto. Generally, after a crisis, what you see is during the crisis itself, there's typically a huge spike in trading volume and volatility because everybody is just trying to figure out what's happening. And then in the days, weeks, sometimes months afterwards, you know, liquidity is much lower, right? Because people are not as actively participating in the markets. People are sort of sitting on the sidelines. They're saying, you know, I'm going to wait and see what's happening. So since FTX, for example, there definitely has been a bit of a liquidity pullback in the markets. Liquidity is much lower now than it was, say, you know, a year, definitely two years ago. Got it. Super helpful. Okay. So here's one question I really, I've had for a while, which is, I don't know too, too much about the different business models of market makers. Could you kind of walk us through some of the thinking there and some of the different options? For sure. So market makers, the primary model of market makers is prop trading, right? Where you're trading your own capital and you're generating profits off of that 
by earning the bid-ask spread as a market maker or by deploying sort of other quantitative trading strategies. So all of kind of the most well-known market makers, both in TradFi as well as in crypto, that's their primary business and that's our primary business. We've been actively trading since 2017. And, you know, knock on wood, we've never had a down day in our own prop book during that whole time. So other business models for market makers are when they start to contract with different types of entities. So, for example, the centralized exchanges, as well as some DEXs, they will offer market making incentive programs to market makers to come and trade on their exchange. For the centralized exchanges, this is super public information. They have published on their website, like what the incentives are for market makers at at different tiers. Then for token projects, right, who are looking to bring on a dedicated market maker to work with them to provide liquidity for their listing, there's a few different market uh, models for working with market makers as well. The first and simplest one is retainer model. So on a retainer model, you're paying the market maker, you know, a certain amount of money per month for them to provide liquidity on your books. And typically that amount scales up with how many trading pairs and how many exchanges you're on. Right. So it's a very simple kind of fee for service model. Another model which is very prevalent is the loan and option model. So with the loan and option model, the token project gives a loan of their tokens to the market maker. And the market maker, you know, also has an option on those tokens, right? So if the price of those tokens goes above X, the market maker can choose to buy the tokens at a certain price and then give stablecoin typically back to the token project instead of returning the loan tokens. So those are some of the primary models for, for working with market makers. In terms of which is the best one for different token projects, I think that really depends on your situation. So with the loan and option model, one of the you know major benefits of it is there's no cash outlay for the project, right? They're just giving the market maker an option and the option can also be meant to align interests. With the kind of the retainer model, you know exactly how much you're paying your market maker. So if your token, you know, 100Xs, right? You're not giving the market maker all that upside, you're retaining all that upside and you're still paying them a flat fee. So I think there's different pros and cons. And there's also different market making firms that use different models, right? So Flowdesk, for example, is very well known for using the retainer model. Companies like us or Wintermute or GSR tend to use more of the loan and option model, although we also offer retainer models when you know we feel that that's mutually appropriate. Got it. Okay. That's really, really valuable. Okay. Thank you. So I want to pivot here real quick. You know, we've talked a lot about sort of getting kind of a quick overview of the market making role. And I think I'm curious. I mean, you have a fascinating vantage point that I think you would have some really insightful things to say about kind of the broader space too. And so, you know, maybe first question here in kind of this new part, I I think I'm curious, like, are there any particular verticals or trends that seem especially interesting or important from your vantage point? Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, when we look towards the future, obviously we're in a bear market right now, right? When I think about what's going to bring the next kind of uptrend in market cycles, I think it's going to come back to real world utility. So one area that we're very actively looking at right now is um, real world assets, right? And how to bring real world assets on chain. That's kind of an area of active research by our ventures team. Another area that we're super interested in is the next generation stablecoin. 
like what's that going to look like? Because stable coins are, I think, you know, probably I think it's, it's safe to say that they are the primary use case of crypto. It's one of the, the use cases that's found the most traction. So what the next gen stable coins can look like, that's something else that we're very interested in as well. And then I think also just kind of looking at what's going to happen to trading, you know, post FTX, right? I think there was a lot of sort of agreement in the market that perhaps there might be too much risk by putting, you know, all of this trading on centralized exchanges. So there are some people who argue that the future of trading in crypto is going to look decentralized. It's going to happen on DEXs, right? It's going to happen with self-custody. And then at the same time, you also see kind of these TradFi players coming into the market, like BlackRock offering ETFs or like EDX markets, which is a very TradFi type of trading venue. So I think, you know, and, and they're trying to win market share by saying, oh, you know, we're TradFi, we're trustworthy, we're regulated, et cetera. So I think that's going to be a, a question that we need to answer as to what the future of trading looks like in crypto. Super interesting. Okay. Really helpful. So you've touched on aspects of the future of crypto. I think if, if I asked you to kind of narrow it down, and this is really actually like a recurring segment on the show, like if I asked the future of crypto is blank, how would you fill in the blank? Mm, that's a great question. The future of, you know, <laughs> there's this saying that it's easier to predict the world 30 years from now than it is to predict the world one year from now. And I think that holds very true. So what the future of crypto is going to look like one year from now, I have absolutely no idea. I think it's very hard to predict. But when I look at the future, you know, 20, 30 years from now, what I see is a trajectory, you know, somewhat similar to that of, of Web2 or of, you know, innovations that have happened in, fi in the financial world previously, right? I think crypto is going to, I think it's going to grow massively. I think that a lot of our financial system will be run on the blockchain in some way or another. I think the industry is really going to take off and mature and become a, you know, foundational part of how our financial systems and perhaps how a lot of other systems as well work. That's the future that I see 20, 30 years, right? How exactly we're going to get there, right? Because it's not a straight linear line. Of course, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs and twists and turns. That's very hard to predict. Love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement about the, the one year, 30 year discrepancy on that. So, you know, maybe two last questions for you here, Julia. You know, I'm curious from your vantage point, like, what would your most generalizable advice be for those who are in crypto right now? Like, what are the one or two things people should know if they're going to be in crypto in 2023 based on your experience thus far? Oh, so many things. It's hard to narrow it down to one or two. So I think advice for, I think, everybody, right, is we all need to be very, very um, aware of what's happening with regulatory issues. I think in the past, there was this perhaps this ethos or this mindset of, you know, just innovate as quickly as possible, right? And, you know, regardless of what the regulatory situation may be, but I think going to 2023, we all have to pay a lot of attention to what's happening with regulations and making sure that we're in compliance with that. Another thing that I would say, and this is general piece of advice for any founders or, you know, anybody who's hiring that I've learned, I think in this space, the ability to learn and um, you know, analyze things and be able to kind of come to new original conclusions quickly 
is more important than experience because there aren't many people who have more than a couple of years experience in this industry, right? And obviously coming from a background in TradFi, coming from a background in you know Web2, it helps. But I found that really the most important skill set for anybody to have in this industry is just the ability to learn, to um, digest tremendous amounts of new information very quickly and be able to kind of reason from first principles and come to conclusions about how to move forward. I love the advice. Julia, okay, what is coming up next for Alpha Lab and what's the best way for people to follow along on the journey? Yeah. So what's coming up next for us is, you know, Token 2049 is happening next month. That's in our hometown of Singapore. So we're going to be hosting a lot of events. Anybody who's going to be in town for that, you know, we would love to see you. And the best way to follow along with us is on our Twitter. Perfect. Julia, thank you so much for the time. Really, really helpful sort of overview and deep dive and then fascinating predictions and great advice. So thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to follow along all the great progress coming up and have a great rest of your week here. Thanks so much, Tanner. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye-bye.